BC, this is not normal. Uh, but these are things that we've discussed as pastors that I have felt pointedly this morning and am thankful for. I do not plan, we do not plan the preaching calendar at CBC based upon felt needs or perceived needs. We plan well in advance. We plan sometimes a year out or more. And we trust that God's word is always timely. God, by the Spirit, works just as much in planning and in preparation as he does in the moment. And this letter of Jude that we've been making our way through the last few weeks and will preach, God willing, today and again next week, is a timely one for our church. The pastors, like many of you, feel and realize that we are on the precipice of maybe even continued growth. The Lord has been kind to our church. He has established this church. He has grown this church. And if this church is going to continue to grow and be established and thrive and be healthy, there are things that we must all love and own and trust and believe and do for one another. And so we're thankful. I'm thankful for the letter of Jude and the content that it contains. It is good for us to consider these things in light of what the Lord has revealed. And so, I as a preacher today feel appointed need of the Lord to be with us and to give us grace that we all would have hearts to receive and ears to hear and that God would do a great work as he is faithful to do, even in our midst today. So if you would, let's go to him in prayer and ask him for his faithfulness and his ministry in our midst today. Our Father, we do come to you and we acknowledge, as we already have at multiple points today, that we are needy and that we are completely insufficient and unable for these things on our own. You are good and holy and righteous and loving and gracious and merciful and utterly faithful every moment. So come and show yourself to be all of that now as we look to your book. Fill me with your spirit as the preacher of your word. Pour your spirit out upon all of us as we sit under your word today. Be with us, teach us, protect us, give us faith. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You realize this as I do, that the preaching of God's word is to, is used of God to give faith, impart faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The preaching of God's word is for our continued nourishment and sustenance and growth in the faith. The preaching of God's word is also for the protection of God's people. The preaching of God's word is also for the preservation of the unity of the saints and the bond of peace. And all of those things are in view this morning. I want to pull you into this text today, Jude 17 through 23. If you have your Bibles, you can go ahead and turn to Jude if you would like. You'll have multiple opportunities to do so. So even in my planned introduction, I'm going to say some stuff that I hope is going to pull you in to the major themes of our text today. But even if I'm not able to achieve that, I am confident that everything I'm about to say is relevant to every single person in this room. Sin wrecks things. Say it again. Sin wrecks things. The battle against sin is real for every single believer. 
preaching and teaching on the gospel, preaching and teaching on doubt, on wrestling, on struggling. Why are those things necessary in the church all the time? They're necessary because sin is still with us. The corruption of the flesh remains, even for those of us who have been justified by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and have been given life in our inner man. The war is real. There is mercy for those who doubt. There is grace for those who struggle. There is compassion for saints who are mired in the battle against the flesh. And all of us, if we are honest, fall into one or perhaps all of those categories. Doubter, struggler, mired in the battle against the flesh, even as we sit here today. In any gospel preaching church anywhere, you are going to have people who doubt the meaning of life, who doubt the promises of God, who doubt, maybe more pointedly, that the promises of God are for them, who doubt whether Christ really is enough to save them as wretched as they are. People who struggle against sin and against the corruption of the flesh. Potentially people who are even being deceived by sin and its hardening effects on us. You have this everywhere, in every church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Saints, our hope is in Christ alone. Amen. He is enough to save even the vilest of sinners. When we use that phrase, Christ is enough, we don't mean anything sentimental. We're not talking about feeling warm and fuzzy. We're talking about the fact that Christ is sufficient and able to save everyone who comes to him in faith. And God is merciful and compassionate toward the weak. As we've considered, whenever you preach the gospel, that good news, Christ for you, Christ is enough. He's done everything required. We only receive what Christ freely gives. People will charge you with things. They'll say, well, if you preach like that, you're condoning sinful, foolish behavior. You're saying, brother, if you preach like that, you're saying it doesn't matter how, how we live. Does it matter what we do? None of those things are true. We do not condone sinful, foolish behavior. It does matter very much how we live. So here it is. There is a difference in being a struggler and a doubter and being a person who, in a proud, high-handed way, disregards the Word of God. There's a difference. Let's say it again. There's a difference in being a struggler and a doubter and in being a person who in a proud, high-handed way disregards the Word of God. As my friend John Moffat said once, he's a pastor in Nashville, Tennessee, 
He said, in having the conversation about the difference between these two subsets of people, effectively what we're talking about is the difference between people who seek to justify their sin and people who fear that they cannot find justification. Different people. Lastly, by way of introduction, here is something that breaks the brains of many in our modern context. We can both talk honestly about false teaching and about those who have no regard for the word of God and have mercy on those who doubt. Those are not mutually exclusive categories. We can talk honestly about false teaching and those who disregard God's word and cause division in the church and have mercy on those who doubt. May God give much grace. We need it. We need it. So if you've already opened your Bibles to Jude, I trust you have. You've had ample opportunity. If you haven't already, shame on you. You should be there. Jude 17 through 23 today. We're going to be looking at these verses, second to last sermon in this very brief series. If you have missed any of the messages up to now, I believe they're all online. I would have commend them to you because it's going to give you more context even for what's said today, though I'm going to try in the next 60 seconds or so to fly over the first 16 verses. Jude begins the letter by affirming the saints in Christ. You're called, you're loved, you're kept by Christ. He then goes on after having done that to write to them of concerns that he has and to write to them about how they are to live in the church. This is always the pattern of the apostles to affirm the saints, to point them to Christ, to assure them of their standing. Now, under that banner, under that heading, here's how we live. He says that he had intended to write to them of their common salvation, but he's aware of things in the church that have prompted him to write something else. He says there are certain people who have crept in unnoticed that are a danger in the church. In the name of grace, they twist the gospel in order to do what they want to do. They follow their passions and their desires, and that's what drives them. They curse and mock the things of God, all while living amongst the saints. And so, Jude writes to this church to raise awareness regarding these people. He writes to exhort the saints to contend for the faith that has once and for all been delivered to the church by the apostles. And alongside this, Jude is clear that these certain people, as he calls them, are liable to the judgment of God. Their way of life, it will destroy them. And Jude writes that way to caution the church. They shouldn't take part in the actions of these people. And they ought not be led astray by them. So with all that, just by way of context, Jude 17 to 23, listen as I read. This is the word of God. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the spirit. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word. So there's two different groups of people in view in this passage. 
Jude writes, on the one hand, a word regarding the scoffers in the church. And then on the other hand, he writes a word to the saints in the church. And so that's effectively our outline for today. Two groups of people, two parts of the message, scoffers and saints. Part one, scoffers. We're going to look at verses 17 to 19. So the first three verses of the passage for part one of the message. Verses 17 and 18 first. Jude writes, you can put your eyes there, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. What predictions, you might ask? Well, he answers his own question. They said that in the last time, there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. Now, don't let the language of last time in the last time throw you. That language of the last time or the last days is a way that the scriptures describe the age of the Messiah. So in other words, the church has been living in the last days. The church has been living in the last time for 2,000 years. There is language in the scriptures about how the end will come and what will characterize it, but that's not what's in view here. It's clear that this understanding of there being scoffers in the church who follow their own passions and all those kinds of things was consistently communicated by the apostles. So that's what Jude is writing about in our letter today, and a survey of the New Testament letters backs that up. For example, listen to the words of Peter. These were read in our midst earlier. From 2 Peter, he says, This is now the second letter that I'm writing to you, beloved. In both of them, I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder that you should remember the predictions of the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior through your apostles, knowing this first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. That's Peter. What about Paul? He writes this to Timothy. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth. So let's pause for a moment. Really important question. What is a scoffer? What is a scoffer? It's not a word we use all the time in our modern vernacular. Well, to scoff, if you look it up like Miriam or Webster or Google or whatever dictionary you use, right? It means to deride, reproach, or mock something. It's to scoff. In a New Testament context, scoffers are those who would then deride, reproach, or mock the faith. They scoff, in other words, at the theology, the piety, and the practice of true religion. There is much that could be said here. But what Jude has written, even in this short letter is sufficient to illustrate or explain what a scoffer is. So he's written, he's spilled ink on the following, even in this short letter. A scoffer is a person who perverts the grace of God into sensuality. We twist grace, we leverage the gospel to justify doing what we want to do. In particular, doing what we want to do when it comes to our sexual lives. That's in view. Scoffers are people who blaspheme everything that they don't understand. They curse everything they don't understand about God, about his law, about his ways, about his church. All while following their own sinful cravings and passions. 
Scoffers are those who live based on instinct. They live based on what feels, sounds, seems good to them. They're grumblers, malcontents, nothing's ever enough. They boast in their way of living, and they manipulate others for their own advantage. This is all contained in this letter. The apostles were clear that these people would exist in the church. Jesus indicated this too. For example, in his parable of the wheat and the tares. The presence, in other words, saints, of scoffers in the church, though hard and often painful, is not unexpected. God is not surprised, and we need not worry that something has gone off the rails. As for us, we preach Christ. We administer the sacraments. We love and watch over one another. We contend for the faith, and we trust the Lord. And all will be well, because Christ has us. Verse 19, put your eyes there. Jude, in talking about the scoffers that he's already referenced, he says that it is these people who cause divisions in the church. He says they are worldly people who are devoid of the Spirit. So again, you see that in the mind of the apostle, there is a difference between these certain people, scoffers, and the saints of the church. According to Jude, the scoffers in view are devoid of the Spirit. And we know that to be in Christ is to have the Spirit. So these people are not counted amongst the number of the saints, though they are in the church. So in the flow of the apostles' thought, scoffers who follow their own sinful desires are people who cause division in the church. And this is obviously true on its face. People who track with him, track with Jude. People who deep down just want to do what they want to do and will even manipulate grace and the gospel in order to justify doing it. People who malign the law of God and the things of God and the church of God, who though they don't understand any of that at all, mock it and speak derisively about it. Of course, such people would cause division. Now, division, before we move on into part two of the message, division in the church, just briefly. Division in the church is a much bigger deal than I think we often think it is today. I'll, I'll just go and say that I, I'm counting myself amongst this number. None of us care or are concerned enough about unity in the body of Christ. None of us are. We so quickly jettison unity for our own cause, for our own sake. Division in the church is a big deal in the New Testament because it's a big deal to God. So when it comes to the church, love for one another and unity of the body of Christ are the biggest emphases of the apostles in the New Testament. Jesus himself prayed for the unity of his people in the high priestly prayer of John 17. And even in Paul's letters, 
just to survey those briefly. In particular, the letter of Ephesians. You're familiar with that letter. We went through it a couple years ago in our church. Paul begins in the first three chapters with soaring doctrine of the grace of God, the nature of the gospel, redemption in Christ, the hope to which we've been called, that we would know the length and depth, the height, the breadth of the love of Christ. And then he turns in chapter 4, and he's going to pivot to talk now about how we're to live together. What does he begin with? He begins with living in a way that's commensurate with the gospel, bear with one another in love, be patient, be humble, pursue and protect the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. In Ephesians chapter 4, in the latter verses, it is anger in the corporate context of the church that gives opportunity to the evil one. So a lot of times that, that verse, Ephesians 4.27, is ripped out of context. And people will walk around. You've heard it just like I have. right? I'm not trying to be cute or funny, but it's just you hear people like, don't give him a foothold now. Don't do that. We don't want to give the devil an opportunity. And it's like we talk about that individually. We talk about that as though all that that pertains to is my own life, usually my private thought life. Well, not saying that's illegitimate, but according to the apostle, the playground of the devil is anger in the church that goes unresolved. Harboring bitterness and harboring animosity towards our brothers and sisters is quite literally the devil's playground. You want the church to be destroyed? Harbor anger. Right? Ephesians 4.30, just a few verses later. What is it that grieves the Holy Spirit? We talk about that language all the time. We use that all the time too. Individually. Like, I don't want to grieve the Spirit. It's a corporate exhortation. What grieves the Holy Spirit of God is speaking in such a way that you destroy your brothers and sisters instead of building them up. That grieves the Spirit of God. To sow division in the church, saints, is no small matter. And as I said, we all, the elders included, are not as concerned as we should be for the unity of the saints in the bond of peace. May God help us all, right? Unless there be any doubt about the significance of this matter, there's the words of Paul to Titus. He writes, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. So putting a bow just on part one, the word from Jude about scoffers. To sum it up, the apostle writes, Beloved, remember that the apostles have said that these kinds of people will exist in the church. They will follow their passions they will cause division. They are worldly and devoid of the Spirit. These are the people who have crept in unnoticed and are among you. Be aware, be vigilant, watch over one another, and contend for the faith. That's a summary. Part two, the word to the saints. The word to the saints. We're going to look at verses 20 to 23. We'll begin in verse 20 and 21. It's very clear, again, in the mind of the apostle, he is pivoting from talking about one group of people to talk to the saints. You can see that in verse 20. He's just talked about the scoffers. 
These who cause divisions, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved. He's pivoting. He refers to the saints as beloved in this verse, as he has at other points. Verse 3, verse 17, for example. Now, in verses 20 and 21, there are some, for the grammar people out there, for the English majors out there, some participial phrases. There's one verb, three participial phrases. can be a little awkward to bring across from Greek to English. So here is a reasonable way to read verses 20 and 21. But you, beloved, as you build yourselves up in the faith, as you pray in the Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Very important observation. Not going to be surprising to most of you. Everything in verses 20 and 21, by way of the participles and the verb, is corporate. It's plural. All corporate. So we're going to think about this corporately. We're going to take these phrases one at a time. First phrase in verse 20, building yourselves up in the faith. Where else, think New Testament, where else do we read language of the body of Christ building itself up? Also Ephesians chapter 4, right? Most pointedly. I already summarized the first few verses of Ephesians 4 a minute ago. I won't do that again. But beginning in verse 7 of Ephesians 4, Paul's going to talk about life in the church and the body of Christ and how it functions when it's healthy. He talks about how there are gifts that are given to the church in the form of teachers and preachers. They're given to the church to equip the saints, to equip the saints unto maturity so that we might not be blown around by every wind of doctrine, by strange teaching. The goal is conformity unto the maturity of Christ. Then he says this. He says that the body, when it is functioning properly, every part of it works together so that it builds itself up in love. That's Ephesians 4, 7 to 16. So in other words, whenever we hear this language or read this language of building yourselves up in your most holy faith, our first instinct should be, we all do this together. I need you. You need all these people. We do this corporately. We will not build ourselves up in the faith alone. Next phrase, praying in the Holy Spirit. Again, this is a corporate exhortation. Where else do we read of the Holy Spirit and prayer in the New Testament? A couple places pointedly. Romans 8. It's a very comforting verse. Romans 8, 26. This is in the whole context of the creation's groaning. We're groaning. We're awaiting our redemption, the resurrection of our bodies, right? This is what we wait for and hope for. It's not seen, but it's coming. But there's groaning. Then Paul, Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. That's a comfort to me. I hope it is to you. How many times do you find yourself in a situation, even in a group of people, and you're like, I don't know what to pray. 
Where else, though, do we read about the Holy Spirit in prayer? Ephesians chapter 6, most pointedly verse 18. What's the context of that one? It's the context of the armor of God. I remember this from our time through Ephesians. There's a lot that could be said about the armor of God, but if there's one takeaway from the armor of God, the armor of God is not about you. Quite literally, Jesus Christ, what he's done for us is the armor of God. Consider the words, the belt of truth. Whose truth? Yours? No, God's. The breastplate of righteousness that we would put on. Whose righteousness? Yours? Don't think so. The righteousness of Christ that we put on. Again, Ephesians 6, armor of God. Put on the gospel of peace. What's the gospel of peace about? Peace with whom? The good news of whom? Christ and peace with God because we've been justified through him. Put on, take up the shield of faith. Well, what is faith? Faith is looking outside of ourselves to another who has done what's required. To another who has atoned for my sin. Who has absolved me of guilt and has given me righteousness taking up the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. What's the Word of God about? Who's it about? The helmet of salvation. Who accomplished that? Who does that belong to? The Lord. It's in that context, right after all that, that Paul says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And respectfully, my takeaway in reading all of that, like put on Christ, the war is real, the enemy fires darts, our own flesh battles against us, put on Christ and pray in the spirit all the time. It's like, yes, no kidding, we must pray. What else would we do? We often talk like that, right? We, we get to a place in our lives or in our families or in the church or whatever, and you kind of throw your hands up and you're like, well, I guess all we can do now is pray. And with all due respect, that's where we always are, saints. What else are we going to do? We can't change somebody's heart. Can't affect the kind of change we want to affect. We pray. We're in the midst of a war against the enemy and against our own corruption. We are in way over our heads, and so we put on Christ and we go to God all the time with our need. We ask him for what we need, and he's honored in that. He doesn't grow weary of our requests. The Lord is honored when we acknowledge our need of him and come to him and ask him for things that we know we could never do for ourselves. We do this, praying in the Spirit, bringing our supplications and our petitions to God. We do this with and for one another. The Spirit is the one who prompts and stirs us to pray, and He's the one who guides us in prayer. Next heading, next phrase. We've already thought about building yourselves up in the faith, praying in the Holy Spirit. Keep yourselves in the love of God, says Jude. All right, so I'm just going to come on out with it and ask the question. Does this mean that we are the ones who keep ourselves unto salvation? Do we do that work of keeping? My answer, biblically, is no, not at all. The only way to make that argument 
is to pit this verse against many other verses and to turn the New Testament on its head. This is a very similar kind of exhortation, I would contend, to a Philippians 2, 12, and 13 kind of exhortation. Many are familiar with those two verses where God will say, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, with reverence, right? Work out your own salvation for, because it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Similar exhortation. Keep yourselves in the love of God, for it is God who keeps you. Philippians 3, Paul says that he strives after attaining eternal life because Christ has taken hold of him. This is how the apostles speak. And here's the kicker. You know this is coming. We do this together too. We keep ourselves in the love of God. I don't keep myself. You individually don't keep yourself. We keep each other. We've considered a number of times that God keeps us unto salvation through living and active means. You hear that phrase, once saved, always saved. Not a helpful phrase. Because what people often mean by that phrase is, I, at one point in my life, did this faith thing. I maybe prayed a prayer. I maybe walked an aisle. I, you know, at a camp meeting, I put my stick in the fire or whatever it is, right? I did this thing once and now you're good. Doesn't really matter what you believe. Doesn't matter what you do. Certainly once saved, always saved. Not helpful. That makes it into this like mechanical transaction thing. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. All those who have been united to Christ by faith will be finally saved. Book it. Book it. Not up for debate. Anyone united to Christ by faith will be kept by Christ unto salvation, full stop. Praise God indeed. It's our only hope. Now, how does God keep us though? Through living and active means, He does. The most significant of those means, and hear me out on this, the most significant of the means that the Lord uses is what? The church. The church. We want to be kept. We live life in the church. Why do we say that? Because all of the means of grace that God has given, the word of God, the sacraments of baptism in the Lord's table, prayer, song, all of these things in a pointed way in a New Testament context are practiced, observed, applied in the gathered church. And the Lord shows up time and time and time again to bless that, to sustain, to nourish, to protect his people. We've talked about this some lately. I'm going to say it again. I'm going to keep saying it. Perhaps the best analogy of the Christian life is the analogy of that of being a pilgrim. A pilgrim is a person what? Who is traveling, who is sojourning in a land that is not yet his homeland. He's been promised a homeland. He's headed to a homeland, but he's not there yet. That's what we are, saints. It's what God's people have always been in this world. Exiles in Babylon. Sojourners 
in this life awaiting the promises of God that will be consummated in the new heavens and the new earth as we see God as he is and dwell with him forever. We await that. It's where we're headed. But between here and there, there are thousands upon thousands of spiritual dangers we face. Here's the thing. Pilgrims need sustenance. Pilgrims need nourishment. Pilgrims need protection. If we're going to make it, we will not survive this alone. And God, in his wisdom and kindness and goodness, has ordained and given the church and the ministry of the church to provide that nourishment and sustenance and protection. So Jude says, Beloved, keep yourselves in the love of God. I, the pastors of CBC, would say, Saints, let's keep ourselves in the love of God. As we gather here week after week, to sit under the word, to come to the table, to pray and to sing, and as we live life in the fellowship of the saints. Next phrase. Last phrase there at the end of verse 21. Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. In the context, this is very clearly pointing to the return of Christ and to our bodily resurrection in him. It's kind of a cool way to describe the second coming. Like waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. We have already received mercy for our sins. His mercy is greater than our transgression. Mercy has been poured out in abundance upon us already. And we will receive yet more. We will be resurrected in these our very own bodies. Let's talk like that more. I don't know about you, but I never grew up in a context where I was taught about bodily resurrection. Heaven always was just kind of assumed to be this spiritual ethereal place. You know, and oftentimes it was like we're playing harps on clouds and stuff. And I know, Eddie, I know you play the harp, brother, but I was just kind of like, hey, I mean, I don't know about that. I mean, is that really what the scriptures promise? We will be resurrected in these, our very own bodies. We will see the Lord with these, our very own eyes. And we will dwell with him and with one another forever in a land where there is no death, no possibility of things getting worse, in a land where no one will ever flip the script, in a land where we won't even want to do evil, in a land where we will perfectly love each other and God will be with us. That's when you say, Lord, come back and make that a reality. This struggle is real, right? It's the hope to which we've been called. Jude writes, Beloved, as you build yourselves up in the faith, as you pray in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we say, may it be. Verses 22 and 3. We're continuing on in part 2. In these two verses, there's some pretty cool and important exhortations. I suppose I can say cool about something in the Bible, right? Again, these exhortations are all 
corporate, not surprising, all corporate. And I'm just going to go ahead and say this before I even get into any of it. I may add this in later just to be redundantly clear. When we consider these exhortations, three of them in the final two verses of our text today, not only are they corporate exhortations, just to be crystal clear, this is for every person in the church to do, not just the pastors. Because I think sometimes we have that that default position that like the pastors need to like do the stuff and our job is to equip all of us to do the stuff. And so that's the hope, right? Just to be clear on that. So when you hear this, think I need to do this for these dear people. Okay. First phrase, have mercy on those who doubt. All right. So again, remember this in the mind of this apostle, Jude, The scoffers, the certain people who have crept in unnoticed, who are harming the church, and then those who doubt are not the same people, right? That's important that we understand. So he's talking about mercy upon those who doubt amongst the saints, not mercy on those who have no regard for God's word. So there's a world of difference, as I said earlier about being a scoffer, between being a scoffer and being one who wrestles with doubt. Briefly, again, just for clarity, a scoffer is a person whose sinful desires are king. What's on the throne? What's the motivation? What's the driver? Me. What I want. That is what characterizes a scoffer, a person who manipulates God's law and God's gospel. A person who is engaged in sin in a high-handed, to use an Old Testament phrase, an intentional, presumptuous kind of sinning. A person who is incorrigible, who receives no correction, who won't hear. And a person who despises the authority of the church. So, Again, in the mind of the apostle, I want to be clear about who these people are. These are people who are in the church. They have tasted and seen of the heavenly gift. This is Hebrews 6, right? External participants in this covenant of grace. They taste and see they're of us. But ultimately, disregard the word of God and have always deep down been living, driven and motivated by their own desires. So in other words, this is not your unbelieving family and friends. That's not who's being talked about here. Your unbelieving family and friends who have never professed to be a brother or sister in Christ. That's not who's in view here in terms of a scoffer. These are Hebrews 6, 1 John 2 kind of individuals. So let me just say it this way. God is merciful upon all people in that he sends the rain on the just and the unjust alike. God is merciful upon all people in that he causes the sun to shine on the evil and on the good. In that sense, we have mercy toward all people. In the church, for those, though, who claim the name of brother or sister, we interact differently with people who seek to justify their sin and those who do not think they need mercy. It's a serious problem. If you seek to twist the law of God and the gospel of God to sin, and you don't think you need mercy from God, that is serious. 
but then a doubter. What is that kind of person? A doubter is a person who has agreed with God, his law, what it requires. A doubter is a person who has agreed with God about sin and what it is. A doubter is a person who has agreed with God about his or her need of mercy. A doubter is a person who has sided with the Lord against his sin. He said, I don't want to sin. I want to honor God. I agree with him. But here's the problem. I fail a lot. That's a doubter. So please do not misunderstand a word I'm saying today. This is not an exacting, threatening kind of thing. There is mercy upon mercy upon mercy and grace upon grace upon grace for people who say, bro, I am with all of us in agreeing with God that he is holy and his law is good and I'm a sinner and I fail so often and it breaks my heart. Welcome. Take a number and get in line. That's what we all are. We want to live for God. We delight in God's law and our inner man. Yet, like Paul, we say, I so often don't do what I want to do. I so often find myself doing the things that I don't want to do. I don't do the things that I want to do. When I want to do good, evil lies close at hand. Who will deliver us? That's what we say. And every time we ask that question, Every time that that is raised, even when God's law is read or preached in this service, our answer with the apostle is thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There is therefore no condemnation for all those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise be to the Lord. That's what we are. We are all doubters and strugglers in this room. I'll even be more provocative and say that we are all abusers of grace because we twist it sometimes. But the difference between a doubter and a struggler is that in my heart, I delight in his law. And in my heart, I'm grieved by my sin. In my heart, I don't want to fail. In my heart, I want to live for the Lord. And I'm grieved that I don't even feel about all that like I should. That is what we are. So for those who doubt, for those who struggle, for those who find themselves up to their eyeballs in their fight against the flesh and wonder, is there justification for me? The answer to that is a resounding yes. O sinner, look to Christ. Doubter, struggler, look to Jesus, who is your redemption, who is your salvation, who is your righteousness, who is your wisdom who is eternal life for you. Receive it. And such is true righteousness. Next phrase. We've thought about having mercy on those who doubt. We do that for each other all the time. We're pointing one another to Christ. Bearing with one another in love. Next phrase, verse 23. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. Strong image. Strong image used by the apostle here. My maybe way of rendering it would be, go after people and hawk them down when they run off into sin. It's the best way I know to put it. Go after people, hawk them down as they run off into sin. The imagery is pointed, right? Think about how you, if you're a parent, you're going to get it. If you're not a parent, you're going to get it. Think about the toddler that's just 
mindlessly, obliviously wandering toward the flame. What are you going to do? I wouldn't do that. Hey, be careful. It's not what you do. You go and you get him or her. You grab them. And then you talk about it. Right? So at times, this is called for in the church. Now, may God give us all grace that we would receive this. Because usually that's what happens is you go after somebody and they're just like, how dare you? Right? May God give grace. But this is required. This is part of our watching over each other. This going and snatching people from the flame. And I reiterate this. We all do this. This is not just something the elders do. If that's true, if it's only the elders doing it, there are going to be a lot of people falling in the fire because there aren't enough of us, at least now. And we all have to watch over each other. We take ownership and responsibility over one another to speak in these ways. Bro, what are you doing? Sister, talk to me. What are you doing? Why? That's what we do. We have to. Next phrase, show mercy with fear. This is to others, right? So we have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others, show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. This is a very Galatians 6.1 kind of feel. Galatians 6.1 says that when someone is caught, ensnared, trapped in sin, right? Those of you who are spiritual should restore such a one with a spirit of gentleness, keeping watch on yourselves lest you too fall, lest you too be tempted. So this is that. We show mercy to those who are ensnared in sin. We seek them and we seek to restore them and bring them back into the fold with a spirit of gentleness. We do this all the while keeping watch on ourselves lest we too be tempted and lest we too fall. We know our own frame. We hate the sin in question. We lament the corruption of the flesh. And we take great care because we know ourselves. We're mindful of how destructive sin is, and we hate the destructiveness of sin. Do you not, do we not hate sin in that way? Yes. It ruins literally everything. And we are mindful, saints, as we seek to do this for one another. We are mindful that if it were not for the grace of God, we would be in the same place. And we not only speak it that way, we believe that in our hearts and minds. Not only do we say and believe, were it not for the grace of God, I'd be doing the same thing. We would even say and believe, you know what? There's, it's even money that one day that's going to be me. And I'm going to need somebody to do for me what I'm trying to do for this person right now. I'm going to need someone to come after me and seek to restore me just like I and we are seeking to restore this person. All of that, everything that's been described is how we seek to live together in the church. We gather regularly. We sit under the word. We come to the table. We sing and we pray. We live life in the fellowship of the saints. We have mercy on those who doubt. We give grace to those who struggle. We go after those who are heading off into sin, and we seek to restore those who are caught in sin with a spirit of gentleness and great care. It's what we do. And these are things 
that I know are dear to me and the elders of this church, I know they are dear to you. And these are things that will be absolutely necessary for any church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are necessary and will continue to be for CBC to be the kind of church we all need it to be. Now, you're sitting there and you're listening to it and you're like, bro, this, this is heavy. It's a lot. Like a lot of what you're talking about is really hard stuff. And that's ex- entirely true and exactly right. I mean, this whole idea of division in the church and pain that that produces, the whole idea of people doubting and struggling, of going off into sin, all of that is hard. But here's the thing. In spite of the hard, we currently and will continue to be able to do all of this with an unshakable hope and confidence. You might not always feel it. You might have days where you're like, I just don't know if I can do this anymore. Press on, dear saints. We have an unshakable hope. How do we do this with hope? Well, because Christ has us. Because his mercy has already been showered upon us miserable offenders. And we look to the day, like we thought about a minute ago, that on account of him, we'll be raised imperishable and incorruptible. We can have confidence as we look to that day, because Jesus himself has told us that he'll raise us up on that day. And the greatest just solid rock, good news statement that you could hear when it comes to your resurrection is that Jesus has promised it to you. Why? Because he never fails at anything. Everything he's ever promised, he does. And he prays for us. Father, I desire that they whom you've given to me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you've given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. And so we will be with him. Saints, the Lord is with us in all that we do. He sees and he knows and he loves us. He tells us to cast our burdens and our fears and anxieties on him. Because he cares. And even as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death and face those realities, take comfort that in his word he's told us things like this. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. Our Savior comforts us. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And if it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. There's the hope. He says he'll do it. So this is why at the burial of a saint, we read these words. I am the resurrection and the life, says the Lord. He that believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall not die forever. We know that our Redeemer lives and that we shall rise out of the earth in the last day and shall be covered again with our skin and shall see God in our flesh. Yes, and we ourselves shall behold him, not with other, but with these same eyes. So, beloved, let us keep ourselves in the love of God waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. May God give grace, and let's pray.